Welcome to Tetra Podcasts. We're joined this episode by Memo Coastman, co-author and illustrator of All Yesterdays and, of course, Cryptozoologicon. This is some people are already calling this like the biggest uh, zoological discovery of the 21st century, which seems to me a bit bit premature to me. But, um, but is it yeah. like a very distinct new animal, or is it more like a subspecies? Kind oh, of? It's, well, it's, it's, it's clearly distinct from all the other tapirs, which is why it's named as a new species. It's distinct in anatomical and genetic terms and so on. But if you were to see one, you wouldn't, it wouldn't strike you as particularly odd compared to other tapirs. It's actually been known since 1912. There's been a, a museum, there's been a specimen sat on a museum shelf since then, collected by Theodore Roosevelt. But, um, um, yeah, it, it it looks like a it's a small taper. It's smaller than all the others. But um, I guess the thing is, was this of interest to people that call themselves cryptozoologists before this, or was this? Uh, no, it thing? wasn't. It was, yeah, what always happens is they is they claim that these things are really significant because um, because they show all like, you know new big animals to find, um, and yes, it's a big deal in that in that sense, a significant new large mammal, but um, it's not um, big for. After this, it will be significant because they will say, as far as 2013, big animals were discovered. So, yeah, you know. that's right. Yes. After after it comes out, it becomes ammunition for the believer camp. <laughs> this this is true. I mean, I, I I've no doubt that uh, that exactly that will happen. So that they'll say those things. So um. So I, I did. I did an interview last night with um, with Blake Smith from from Monster Talk about the Cryptozoologicon. So that will go online sometime this week. Right. Um, yeah, and that was that was good fun. So, um, what do we want to talk about today? Me, uh, I actually asked people a few things. Let me see. Uh, the big, big uh, Montosaurus with the new soft feature is. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the stuff on the stuff on Facebook. We'll come back to that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Later, yeah. But why are we here? About uh, our new book, I guess, and the signing and the event that accompanied it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are here because a new book by Irregular Books just came out, the Cryptozoologicon, where we tried sort of. To do the same thing we did for dinosaurs with cryptids, but obviously with cryptids not being real, we went for an imag- imaginative reimagining rather than an speculative reinterpretation. And basically, what we did was we took claims of basically a mix of cryptids, ranging from the absurd to the more or less plausible, and uh, we looked into the claims and then we looked into the facts behind those claims and the facts almost always turn out to be that these aren't real animals or real reports. And then to add some flavor, we did uh, a sort of reimagining session where we put together uh, our own speculative uh, reconstructions of these as if if they were real. And we accompanied these with really nice illustrations, of course, and out came a really nice, neat, compact, informative and text-heavy book, I guess. Possibly, possibly the best book ever, I would say. <laughs> On the subject. No, in general. <laughs> in yeah, general, yes. yeah. 
is Gutenberg. It has all been a culmination for this. It was all so that we could get to do a picture of uh, pink frogs having sex in this book. <laughs> and if, you, if you read the book, you will see what this means. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been telling people that the book is is picture-led. I like saying it's picture-led because I always think that we produce these books with the illustrations as the um, you know main attraction. But but the fact that that we ended up producing so much text for this one in the end means that in actual fact it's 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 it is it, I still say it is picture led but it's got a pretty reasonable amount of text in it as well so well sometimes um, it was picture led and sometimes it was text led right I mean that's the way we worked sometimes we had the picture first sometimes we had the text first I think oh it's but both I ways. mean yes no yeah 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 that's you, yeah you're thinking of led in a different way I just mean in terms of like the style the style of the book is it a book that exists for the art. Or, you know, some, some books, they're about words and the pictures are stuck in as an afterthought. They might not even be in some editions of the book. But, um, yeah, but I think that these are, these books, these books are picture-led. But I would say this one, compared to all yesterday's, I mean, you would say all yesterday's is definitely picture-led. You, you pick it up and you flick through it and it's all about the illustrations. But um, I'm not sure that's true of this one. And maybe it's kind of more of a, more of a no, balance. The illustrations and the text are equally significant. This is a very well-rounded bookie book. It, I can compare it to uh, Wayne Barlow's expedition book, which had equal parts text and artwork, and yeah. both both were integral parts of the whole narrative. Mm -hmm. And well, I think it's the it's the better way to go. Whatever we do, books on the next, I think this equal mix of art and text is really sure. attractive. As yeah, yeah. Well, I always, I always hoped to have more stuff in all yesterdays, but that was, we are often constrained by time and such, aren't we? So you can't do everything you want to. But, um, you know, yeah. readers may be surprised that we are thinking very hard about an all yesterdays rehash, second edition. So yeah. no more stuff might come in. Mm. So what have people said so far about the Cryptozoologicon? Well, the overwhelming response has been positive. Everybody likes it and praises it. And um, from the True Believer camp, uh, for information to our readers, these are people who really believe and focus their careers on the beliefs of certain mythical creatures like lake monsters or Bigfoot. And from this camp, uh, it has been an ominous silence. Maybe yeah. they're ignoring us. I think they are. Yeah, I've been talking about this with other people who are involved in cryptozoology, and uh, there's there's a deafening silence because they don't like it. There's there's one um, which is which is to be to be expected. I mean, it's, I kind of find it childish and frustrating, but it's it's not a surprise. <laughs> um, there's one prominent cryptozoologist who has said one negative thing about it, but he then he then deleted the uh, the communication. It was well, a tweet. Where's well, this? Really? Oh, another. I want to see it now, Darren. Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you when we're not um, recording because I don't think I should say it. But, uh, it's, another, another, it's nothing serious. Another person on Facebook was calling us pumping people for, for attention. Oh, that was yeah. That was um, Chris Clark. Uh, Chris Clark was at the Cryptozoological launch. Um, yeah, he just he was just joking about the fact that I was repeatedly uh -huh. um, promoting the book on my Facebook page. Preening like as... actress, Darren. Preening like actress. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's an in-joke to, to others. Um, ah, so I, I didn't get the irony there. I must have overlooked. 
Well, he was he, he was saying that, you know, you keep promoting this. And then both John and I both said on Facebook, yeah, well, how stupid. It's almost as if we want people to buy this book. It's almost, it's almost <laughs> as if we're trying to make money out of it. Heaven forbid. But, but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but other than that, I mean, if you look at the reviews that are out there so far, and, and it's early days, there aren't many. I would say six or seven or eight, that kind of number. Um, they're either overwhelmingly positive, as in like five stars out of five, that sort of thing, or they're... It's good, but but there's one or two things I don't like about it, so they give it like three out of five. But mm-hmm. um, but it, but even those reviews are. Uh, I mean, the one I particularly liked the review that said he didn't like uh, didn't like the artwork. <laughs> 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 but then that was a, a guy called called Lorenzo, who's quite a well known comment commentator on cryptozoological issues. But he said mm-hmm. as well that you know, well, that's my opinion, so it's irrelevant. And and he's right. Yeah, and you can't. I think if you ever put anything into the, the public sphere. Well, Somebody you know, will not like it. Exactly, exactly. It doesn't matter who you are. There's going to be people who dislike, especially <laughs> art. I mean, art being so subjective in terms of what's, what's good, what's bad, what we like. Um, but yeah, but other than that, really happy with them, the, the, the feedback let's, that we've done. We're also working for the volume two of this book, with featuring more and stranger creatures. Mm. Uh, uh, personally, I was busy for one of the illustrations where supposedly this giant bird-like thing, shall we talk about that maybe? Or like previous from volume two, that is to say. We should say, or, well, I was going to say, we should say that the original plan, there, was, there never were plans to produce more than one volume. Mm-hmm. But we came up with a list and produced so much material that producing it as one volume would be too expensive. And uh, we actually had a difference of opinion among ourselves as to what we should do. On the one hand, a member had a very good idea that we should produce one enormous slavish book. But I've, I think John and I argued that this would make the make the book too expensive. It would price potential buyers out. So, yeah, we ended up going for, for two volumes. That's why we've done it. And also, I have made the discovery that I we're at the maximum level we can charge for an e-book. Um, which is interesting because it's not very much, 660. But that's the most yeah. we're allowed to charge on Amazon. And so if we joined them all into one book, <clears throat> obviously right. we'd make half as much or less. I, 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 I think I we should at this point say that, you know, this sounds like, well, we're making a lot of money here, but I think it's, <laughs> yeah. it's fair to say that the profit margin is not very good on the uh, printed copy. It's it's quite small. So Razor thin. Razor thin. So, yes. Uh. It's always nice to have hard copies. Yes. And, and about the volumes thing, I retroactively uh, think it's a good idea because now if we come up with more cryptids, we can just pop up a volume three. Or yeah. we do a kind of participative contest like we did for all your yesterdays. It could be like volume X. And this time we could actually properly tell people that we will publish this book and maybe actually sell that too. <laughs> maybe. What's, what's the biggest controversy that came out of the um, the launch? Because it's a bit surprising. Mm. Uh, <laughs> do you mean, do you mean the <laughs> camera phones? The great the mobile cam- phone debate. The, the, the great mobile phone debate. As to, so, so I think quite, quite a few people, quite a few listeners will have seen this, this um, cartoon uh, on... What's that comic strip called? X- XCD? I can't remember what the name of it is. KXCD. Yeah, that. That, that uh-huh. had this, this, this little cartoon saying how 
the, the fact that everybody, nearly everybody in the, well, the majority of people in the so-called developed world and a significant percentage of people in the so-called developing world, everybody now carries cameras, cameras with them. Not just because more people have cameras, cameras are cheaper, but also because everybody has phones with, mm -hmm. with cameras on, that being the key thing. And this, discover, this fact means that we've actually managed to pretty much dispel the existence of, we can say that UFOs and ghosts and, and Bigfoot, <laughs> surprise, actually don't exist because, because <laughs> if they did, wouldn't there be... I mean, you look at some of the other stuff. People have people have now photographed rare events, uh, rare you know weather events, and and weird animal behaviour and crazy yeah, accidents. Sure. Yeah, I was I was watching just last night. night um, uh, luckiest Google like amazingly lucky people, and you get all these like split second from death things where cars crash into people and people dodge out the way of trains. All these split second things, that, you know, which people are now routinely capturing on film. Um, oh. But but the cryptids and paranormal phenomena, funnily enough, aren't being captured on film, which, what does that tell you? And uh, so, so in the, at the Cryptozoological launch, somebody said, ah, oh, the reason why these things aren't being captured on film is because the, these, these things, you know, mystery animals live in areas where people don't have phones. And, of course, the immediate response to this is, mm, are you sure? I mean, John was yeah. saying that. John, well-travelled mountain man that he is, was saying that... Um, that, well, you know, when I was out in Central Asia, everybody had a mobile phone. <laughs> well, they, cert they certainly do in Tibet, and they do in the places I've been in Africa. I mean, they're really common. Um, and Being from the third world myself, I can personally vouch for the fact that everybody, even in the most desolate parts, go around with camera phones and camera devices. I yeah, I, I, and I've been I've been around the Sahara, Libya, and Morocco, uh, and and everybody everybody there has has phones and and relatively new phones. I mean, I don't mean like you know iPad, iPhone five kind of thing, but but um, yeah, new phones that had little primitive cameras on them. So I, and I think it does depend on where you are. But given that things change so quickly, I mean. In this discussion we were having on Facebook, so this was this this came up again after the Cryptozoological launch because uh, there was a thing in the news a couple of days ago where some Mongolian people came out of their uh, yurt or whatever mm -hmm. it's called, and, and there was a snow leopard asleep on the roof. So <laughs> they, they, so they took a photograph of it on their phone. And the news is the thing that's gotten gotten in the news is wow, you know, snow leopard is asleep on top of a yurt. Not the news isn't Mongolian nomads have mobile phones, <laughs> but of course that's the thing we're thinking of immediately. So, well, hold on, we we've just been just talking about this, and like, you know, this is in the middle of pretty much pretty much the middle of the Mongolian desert, and and here we are with people taking brilliant, you know, good enough photographs to show a an animal which I don't believe I think snow leopards weren't photographed in the wild until something like 1975, something ridiculous. And we've all heard the stories about how. That brilliant scene in the David Attenborough series Planet Earth, you know, that took like a year of some guy sitting on a mountain waiting for a snow leopard to run down and catch a tar or sera or whatever, whatever it was hunting. Um, but now people, people are snapping mobile uh, snow but leopards also, on phones. Yeah, we should also say it's really, it's a good photo. There's no doubt about what it is. It's not a bobsquatch or something. It's a snow <laughs> leopard right there from about <laughs> nine feet away, right? I mean... Yes. Um, so, Unfortunately, no photos of the Mongolian death worm. 
Yeah. Which, which makes me think it's almost as if we have exchanged one uh, interesting world for another. Like we, we no longer live in a planet full of these mystery creatures or UFOs, but we live in a world full of, I don't know, parrots singing memorized songs and snow leopards on yurts and all other kinds of weird animal behaviors, like turtles ejaculating on somebody's porch, things like this. Right. So, <laughs> That's a good swap. We, we've given up. We've given up the paranormal world, and we've discovered that normalcy isn't as normal as we've expected. Which is well, kind of yeah, maybe well, we have. have. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to swap UFOs for ejaculating turtle turtles. <laughs> Did you see that? It's like a classic. It's, yeah, I yeah, I, know. I haven't seen. We're in Arizona, and and the key phrase there is some like commentator there says. Did he just have an orgasm? And the host says, "No, no, I think he just had a turtle gasm." And <laughs> priceless, I think. Yes. Anyway, back to back to the matter on hand. We we derailed quickly. Sorry about that. Uh, yes. So I actually I want to make one more point about the mobile phones. Uh-huh. In, in some ways, it doesn't really matter whether you know, the proportion that have mobile phones. The the argument from the sceptical side, I guess, is that the, the ownership of mobile phones is shot right up, mm-hmm. whereas the number of photographs of cryptids has not, let's say. Well, yeah, I, th- I think I think if you were to actually do an analysis of this, and I wonder if anyone ha- has, I think the number of photographs has, I wouldn't say shot up, but I think it has increased, but it's increased an amount of crappy, useless stuff yeah, because okay, the yeah. fact that your blob squatches are all over the place. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, obviously, the point is that, you know, there should be semi-decent uh, images of, uh, of some of these things. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a statistical argument. It doesn't really matter what particular numbers go in. Um, mm. That we should be seeing more better, more better photos. Well, that we should be. Terrible, seeing, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's actually kind of a complicated <laughs> argument because people still aren't photographing rare animals that are really rare and very cryptic because well, they're they're hard to encounter. Snow leopards but, on yurts. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah. Exactly. But but something like Sass, the, the the argument there is even a snow leopard isn't encountered that often by people, and so the photographs of them there aren't many, so far as we know. You know, this this. I'm I'm not aware of any other mobile phone snaps of snow leopards, wild snow leopards, but something like Bigfoot is actually supposed to be encountered regularly. It's not supposed to be encountered by people once a year. You know, there are there are definitely hundreds and maybe thousands of sightings every year from a from a developed country, um, cool. inhabited by not a, not a low density of people. But if Bigfoot was only in Saskatchewan or the Yukon, then you can understand it would be rare. But the fact that it's meant to be on, uh, you know, in, in Texas and Florida and, and New York State and, and California. Um, New yeah, York does... State? <laughs> yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a Bigfoot is... Now, okay, there is a problem in the fact that mystery <laughs> hairy hominid-type creatures are report... Are, there's this, they're, they're all lumped into the Bigfoot label. Clade, yeah. yeah. <laughs> clade, <laughs> call it a clade. They're all... Tidia. <laughs> big footedy but yeah. um so, so and some people in, including some cryptozoologists say that we should classify them as you know there should be multiple different types so because the descriptions are different from the different areas so you end up with the uh, the uh, lauren coleman and patrick huige published this book field guide to mystery primates where they have like i don't know 40 different 
mystery primates around the world, you know, 10 different kinds of five or 10 different kinds of mystery hominids living in North America. You know, that's that's kind of where you have to go if you take seriously the idea that there are different flesh and blood explanations. There are flesh and blood explanations for these creatures. But, um, but, but if we assume for a moment that all these things are grouped under the same label, if we all North American hairy man beasts call them all Bigfoot, then yeah, the thing has been reported from every single, well, every single Canadian province, obviously, but also every single uh, American state, every single one, including Hawaii. <laughs> so <laughs> when people say, ah, oh, it's the, the continental United States, no, it's including Hawaii. And I think one of the most interesting things about the whole phenomenon about the the, the, the mystery man beast Bigfoot all, all this stuff is that this is not this is this is not a, a um a, a, an idea that's limited to a, a geographical area a place where you know a little province where a certain unknown species plausibly might discover it's a ubiquitous thing that's basically um uh, overlaps with humanity wherever humans go there are there are hairy wild men. Everywhere no. you go, Everywhere. always take the Bigfoot with you. <laughs> Everywhere you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, and I, I think it's because I think there's a couple of reasons for this. I think one is that we're programmed to see humans. So uh-huh. if we look into the dark, we see human shapes. doesn't matter where you are in the world. People see human shapes. People see human faces everywhere. They look at, look at, they look at tiles on the floor. They see human faces. They look at the night sky. They see bodies. And, or, you, know, you know, in the darkness, we are programmed to see humans. So for a start, we're looking for human shapes. That's an unavoidable aspect of our psychology and our biology. And then the other thing is also because we have to regard ourselves as separate from the rest of nature, and this obviously is kind of like a universal human thing as well. People have always wanted to regard themselves as somehow different from the rest of nature. That's understandable. And I, my prediction is that any species that develops sentience does the same thing. They imagine that the universe is made for them, that they're special. Yeah. So for that reason, the fact that there aren't, the nearest animals to us, the nearest known animals to us, still are different from us. You know, we can say, oh, they live in the forest, or they're hairy, or they're um, whatever. Um, people still imagine that there's some kind of transitional form. I think, I think in myth and legend, there always has been a kind of transi- transitional thing that's not necessarily, uh, that's somehow intermediate between the human world and the natural world, which is why all myths and legends have these kind of mythical wild man type creatures that are somehow transitional between humanity and the rest of nature. Mm-hmm. So you combine those two things, the fact that people see creatures everywhere, the, pack, the fact that people want, want the idea of the wild man, and, and I, think, I think from that is born this strong cultural belief in every single human culture that there are wild people of some sort. And obviously that's become a kind of tidied up, sanit- sanit- um, sanitized biologically plausible um yeah phenomenon which which is the bigfoot the yeti the almas the almasti the the yaoi the, the and so and however many others you you could say it almost starts from uh, the epic of gilgamesh in, in which there's a character called enkidu who's yeah. described as a hairy man yeah so actually spot on with what you just said sure yeah and, and even further back than that i mean um yeah, yeah, I think I think it's just always been there. Also, going back to photographs, uh, Darren, what have you heard of any reactions from like uh, the crypto crowd about camera traps? Because they are actually another uh, interesting sub branch, let's say, of cameras. And 
camera traps have helped uh, people recognize a lot of previously unknown animals. In fact, there's even, you, you would know this better, but there's even like a mystery civet-like animal or a mongoose-like thing from somewhere in Asia, I don't know, that's been you, caught on a camera trap. Uh, yeah, well, that, there's were, actually... Sorry, go on. You were blogging about this. and that's, I was going to say, yeah there's, yeah, there's a couple of Tetsu articles on this, the KN Manchurang animal from Borneo, uh-huh. which was claimed to uh, possibly represent a new species of civet, member of the viverid family mm-hmm. but um well there were always problems with the the couple of images of it and um um reanalysis showed that it's most likely a known animal it most likely is a, a, a kind of flying squirrel which isn't photographed isn't seen often on the ground which is why it looks so odd um but so so that that made that case wasn't wasn't necessarily a mystery animal but um certainly yeah people have captured camera trap, remote camera images of, um, of creatures that have never been um, seen alive before, in some cases never photographed mm-hmm. before. Uh, there's, a few, there's a few Tetsu articles on, on some of these things. Uh, hairy-nosed otter photographed for the first time, large-antlered mudjack, uh, various uh, obscure civets. Um, so yeah, the, these camera traps are fairly successful in, in photographing some obscure things. Interestingly, there are some animals that are very good at avoiding camera traps. For example, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with bush dogs, this very strange South American short-legged... Stoky one. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're fatty, fatty one. Yeah. Fatty, short-legged, uh, colonial, a fantastic dog, Speophos vernaticus. is an, an Amazonian, well, tropical South American forest-dwelling dog, and its name means cave cave animal, cave dog, Speothos. But that's because the origin, it's one of these animals originally named from, from fossils. Um, but, uh, but anyway, the, the, they are very good at avoiding camera traps. There are, region, there are regions where people are pretty confident that they occur, but uh, mm-hmm. they, they can't capture them on camera traps. And they reckon that... It's, it's because they're short, isn't it? They're too <laughs> <short>. <laughs> <laughs> They think, in the people that have written about this, they reckon that it's because... And this is an interesting thing. When we set up a camera trap, we're kind of constrained to thinking like a person. And we sort of look out at a given little patch of forest and we think, now, where, where, where would be the best place to put the, to put the camera? Well, let's put it on this tree because it is overlooking that pathway, yeah? And that's where the animals are going to go. And the majority of animals do think like us, in a sense, and they kind of think, you know, that's the best place to pass through the bush. But other animals don't. They have their own special solutions. And it might be there are some animals who they deliberately won't go across an open area. They will deliberately go through this stupid, tangled, difficult route, you know, because that's that's what they do. That's the thing that's worked for them in the past. So, and it might be, it seems that bush dogs are actually pretty good at this. They are good at, good at coming up with stupid routes that humans don't think of and therefore good at avoiding camera traps. And this might be why some animals are very hard to capture on camera traps. But... Um, Something we talk about a lot here in the UK, I've got quite a bit of interest in the, the British big cat phenomenon, and increasingly people are putting up camera traps in the UK, and they have now successfully um, got footage of big cats in, in, uh, in England, um, and I'm, I'm trying to, I don't understand why the people that have got this don't do something about it, why they don't release it, I just, don't, I just can't get my head around the way they think. And I'm not going to do it myself. I've just discovered too many problems with being associated with that whole area. To, to um, well, why do you think it's so common 
especially in Britain. I'm sure there's intro introduced big cats in lots of parts of the world, but why do you think Britain has turned it into uh, such a little industry, let's say? That's that's a really good question. Um, first of all, you know, there seems to be this general impression that it's a uniquely British and sp uniquely English as well. It's generally regarded as a uniquely English thing, and it's and it's not. Um, people report mystery big cats from across the whole of the UK, but also across like continental Europe, and also, um, you know, uh, France, Germany, Denmark, Switzerland, Austria. They've all had British big cat, uh, not British big cat. <laughs> They've all had mystery big cat cases within recent mm -hmm. years, recent decades. Australia does, uh, North America does. I know uh, Turkey has. Well, there you go. I, I think, I mean, given that th th there are, obviously there are going to be some mystery populations of, you know, relics, leopards and pumas and, mm -hmm. and other animals in some places in the world. You can understand Turkey could still have possibly, you know, relics, leopards and... Um, yeah. There were there were there were lions in your part of the world until the the 1940s or 50s even I, I don't know if they're, yeah. I doubt if they're there now but uh, but um, Actually, you can understand that's plausible for some places mm -hmm. but everywhere else people take with you know people have taken exotic cats everywhere in the world and one thing we know about cats they're they're amazing escape artists mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that it's you know the fact that people have taken them everywhere everywhere they take them these animals escape. And um, in, in some, I think in, in Britain and some other places, you don't have, you don't necessarily have a self-sustaining population of breeding leopards or whatever, but you do have a sort of pseudo population that is constantly stocked up over decades with like the odd new release. Bear in mind, a single animal can have a territory of the size of a couple of English counties. You can understand that theoretically, these creatures could, could roam so far that they could be seen across a huge area by hundreds of people. <laughs> or... Also, uh, by the way, speaking about camera traps and all, should we take this occasion to bring up that one time back in 2008, I guess, when the three of us were drunk and we were talking about this, uh, should we reveal this? We, we kind of got ourselves pumped up so much about, about Bigfoot and the possibility of there actually being something like that. We were, I remember we were talking about sound recordings of screams at night. Oh, and yeah. Maybe it was be before cameras were this pervasive, but somehow we got ourselves worked up so hard that we were like thinking about, yeah, let's get some funding, a couple of thousand pounds and a camera trap and we're business boys. And we kind of had a sort of uh, <laughs> drunken fantasy about mounting an expedition to, the, to Washington State. And really? set up these camera traps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were there. I mean, wow. should we admit this on air or not? I don't well, know. We can well, edit this out too. I don't know. I don't. I don't care. I'm perfectly happy to admit to people that I, I, you know. I think we would all say that if you're a true skeptic, then you, you, your your approach is about going where the evidence takes you, isn't it? It's not about having a predetermined conclusion. So I've certainly, yeah, I've certainly been totally open within recent years to the possibility that Bigfoot and various other cryptids might really be real. And I, and I would definitely go in and check that out if, mm -hmm. if I had the opportunity. At the moment, you know, I don't think the evidence does stack up, but that doesn't mean you're not interested in it. I so, guess the um, question is, if you were given a £15,000 grant to do something, probably looking for Bigfoot isn't what you'd do with it at this that's, stage. That's what I was going to say. If, if, I was, yeah. if you were given that money 
and you had to spend it on investigating Sasquatch, then yeah, I, I'd, I'd have some idea of what to do. But if I was given that money and I could spend it on anything, no, that wouldn't be my first choice. There's, a, there's certainly other things where that would, that would guarantee a result. That's, um... and, and this brings me up to another common question we got about this book, was about which cryptid do you think has the most chance of being real? Like which which one of the like staple cryptids, let's say? Well, let's you go first then. What do you think? It's a, it's a tough call. I think something from the sea maybe is the safe bet. Are we talking about creatures that we have in the cryptozoologicon, or you mean it from the whole canon of mystery beasts? Uh, we've been asked both ways, but I'm thinking the whole canon. Yeah, and and I don't know, but. Maybe something from the sea. Uh, maybe another type of megamouth shark size. Well, yeah, I, I kind of think those those things, uh, new sharks or new whales, as in mm. beaked whales or dolphins, they're kind of so inevitable they're almost boring. I don't think there's yeah. much doubt that there's. I don't think there's a Hooverman's like number. I don't think there's like 20 or 30. I think, but I think there's like one or two or three new big sharks and cetaceans to find. And there's supposed to be a new species of beaked whale that's meant to be announced, you know, sometime real soon. So, um, but they're yeah. not, they're, I don't think they're what people are looking for really. No, are they? no, it's got to be so. significantly different. Mm -hmm. Um, well, then I, I maybe... still think, I still think that the sea monster Avenue is probably the most likely one. But if I wanted to be risky, I would say what you guys said during the launch, Orang Pandek would be the most plausible. Yep. Yeah, that's... that's we, uh... we already have it. It's the Flores Man, Homo Floresiensis. Well, 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 is it? Because this, is, this was actually mentioned in the comments at Tet Zoo's. Uh, uh, Henry uh -huh. Pilstra, uh, some, someone said that, um, um, yeah, is... Because um, we, we, in the book, we have Orang Pandek as a member of the orangutan lineage within hominids, which is contrary to the idea that orang pandek has anything to do with Homo floresiensis, mm -hmm. which I'm pretty sure is not a member of the genus Homo. I think it's outside of the, the, that particular group of hominine. But um, um, the, the, the description... <laughs> We, we, if people want to know the whole story, it's in the book. We do explain this stuff in the book, but mm -hmm. there's, it's, it's confusing because, okay, there's, there's like a current, there's a current, um, view of what Arang Pendek is meant to be like. And you could say the same for Bigfoot and the Yeti. And according to that current view, so according to the present view, the one that you'll see being promoted by people who advocate the existence of Arang Pendek and people who go on expeditions to search for Arang Pendek, Arang Pendek is meant to be a long-furred, reddish forest primate that's a good climber. It does not have human proportions. It's got particularly long and very powerfully muscled uh, arms, and it's kind of more like a bipedal orangutan. Mm -hmm. And according to that view... Which is this, that's the view we followed in the Cryptozoologicon. Mm -hmm. Orang, Orang Pendek is not a member of the human lineage. It seems to be a member of another hominid lineage. Maybe it's a member of the orangutan lineage. That's what we've gone for in the book, right? Mm -hmm. But if you look at the entire literature or, on Orang Pendek, as is always the case with mystery animals, the story is not that consistent. People have not always described a shaggy furred, long haired orangutan like bipedal primate. They've described 
animals that basically are more like hairy little human dwarves. So in, in, in Hoovermans, it's on the track of unknown animals. Um, the, the, the basic description you get from that is of, a, is of a, an animal more like a small australopithecine or, yeah, like Homo floresiensis. He's describing it as having human-like proportions, a human-like body, no mention of particularly long arms and, and big muscly, you know, other other apes tend to be incredibly strong compared to us, don't they? Much bigger muscles. But and also it's got this giant shock of red hair running all the way down its back, this like hair, um big mane thing. And it ah. sounds more like a a hominin, you know, a, a a human kind of hominid rather than anything to do with plausibly orangutans or such. So um we get around this in the book by we, we have a we have a bit of fun by saying, ah, oh, maybe there's more than one species which is what, in keeping with what cryptozoologists have said, like Coleman and Huige in their mystery guide to mystery primates, we kind of play with that. And then we say, well, what about, what about the idea that they've hybridized? <laughs> because, <laughs> again, that's something in the cryptozoological literature, as, you, as everyone will know, thanks to the, uh, the Melba Ketchum uh, um, uh, uh, stuff. So, so um, I, I, I definitely think that cryptozoologists are guilty of, of cherry-picking um, that you 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 take you take out the stuff that best fits a given plausible hypothesis, and um, you kind of ignore the stuff that's that's more problematic. And and if you look at the, all of the orang pendek accounts, yes, yeah, some of them describe this plausible sounding orang orangutan type animal, but others 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 don't. And um, is this a problem that comes from the fact that the the term orang pendek, which after all just means short man, is it a fact that people have applied that to lots of different creatures? Or is it that yeah people are just picking and choosing some things? Um, I mean, as we say in the book, and as, as as we said at the launch event, and as I've said before, and other people have said before, it's an a particularly interesting mystery animal in that it seems to have support from the statements of um you know qualified primatologists. There are, there there are quite a few people who know what they're talking about. They're not just interested in cryptozoology, but people like John McKinnon and Ian Redmond, you know, well-known primatologists, who've seen evidence for this stuff and say that wow i think the evidence for this is really good but you know that sounds good but they still could have made mistakes We've, also yeah people have said that about bigfoot as well and and then it sort of crumbles because um i think there's sort of qualified scientists are not always the best people to be sifting through uh, sorry, qualified zoologists or biologists are not always the best people to be sifting through a bunch of reports that may be false, that may not be the sorts of things people think they are. You know, there's well, sort of a... <clears throat> it's, yeah, a yeah, yeah. it's not... They're not dealing with the, the direct evidence as much as... No, no, no. Now, let me say, in, in the cases I have in mind, their, their, their opinions, their conclusions were based on their confrontation with physical evidence. So John McKinnon, who's really famous mammalogist, he's best known for being associated with the discovery of the Sayola, you know, the, the spindle-horned bovid from Vukang of Vietnam. He uh -huh. was doing field work on Sumatra and he encountered a footprint which he said couldn't be explained in any other way other than that it was produced by the, the Orang Pendek, for example. So he's confronted with some physical evidence and that's where his statements about the Orang Pendek come from. So I think I think that's I think that's pretty interesting. What I would say, oh, I'd say it is interesting, but I would say it's it's far from conclusive. I mean, anyone could be mistaken, no matter how expert they are. If you're given a, lim a fairly limited and small amount of evidence, yeah, then it's just yeah. it's 
very difficult to draw proper conclusions. I would also I agree with you, but I would also say there's a new spin on this, which is that observation comes from, uh, I believe, the 1970s. It's in his book, um, uh, The Red Ape or whatever it's called, the book about his field work on, on orangutans. And since that was written, in the last couple of decades, people have learned that orangutans and gibbons and some other primates are far more proficient at bipedal terrestrial walking than was ever thought. So, for example, mm. if you look at the older books, people will sometimes make fleeting references to, to bipedal behavior in gibbons and simangs, the, the giant gibbons. But there isn't, to my knowledge, there isn't like a, a detailed, you know, look at this phenomenon, the fact that, that gibbons are almost as good at terrestrial walking as we are, you know, almost um, Mm -hmm. They spend a lot of time. Uh, that wasn't appreciated. I don't think that was as well known in the 70s as it was then. And how many studies have you ever seen of, of gibbon tracks? Um, well, I'm not sure that there are any, actually. <laughs> Indeed. So, yeah. um, it's, and, and also bear in mind, Simangs, these, the giant black gibbons, they're huge. I, I, um, I, sh I really would like to know exactly how big. But I know, I know they're big animals. You know, standing up, they're probably not that different in size from the size hypothesized for orang pendek. So as we say in, in the cryptozoological, it, I think it's absolutely plausible that sightings of some other bipedal walking terrestrial, um, other hominoids, so uh, fleeting glimpses of bipedal walking orangutans. Again, how many people actually know that, that orangutans are capable erect bipeds that look sort of pseudo-human when they're, when they're striding along with a straight-kneed gait? How many people are familiar with that? How many people are familiar with the fact that gibbons and simangs are proficient bipeds on the ground? Um, I think all those things, and, and there are other primates to think about as well. We know that you know monkeys and all, and all manner of other primates will engage in unusual terrestrial behaviour on occasion. So that definitely needs to be kept in mind in thinking about the orang pendek. Oh well. By the way, I think we should take this uh, random moment to uh, thank. Uh, one Levelin Reese for an awesome donation she made up to us. Uh, he. He, sorry about that. <laughs> Llewellyn's a boy's name, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it? I, I thought it was Llewellyn. Who are we talking I, about? Yeah. I, anyway. I don't know whether it's the same person. I presume it is. But yes, Llewellyn Reese. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm sorry for this confused thank you. <laughs> and um, who contributed generously to us and our uh, endeavors yeah. so that we could keep everything up on air and keep on much appreciated about talk about yes uh -huh. thank you so much yes what, what so what are we meant to be talking about <laughs> noto ungulates and xenartans all, all i know about noto ungulates is that they're weird and macrochenia is one of them the giraffe with a trunk and toxodon um, no, 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 no. But, yeah. <laughs> how little I know. No, uh, Macrochenia is a litoptern, uh -huh. and litopterns are... So litopterns are actually a separate group from... Uh -huh. Oh, hold on. Toxodonts and little Toxodonts plus uh, typotheres and interotheres and a bunch of others, those are nota ungulates. But does nota ungulata include litopterns as well? There's... I'm, I'm just going to cheat and check. I've forgotten. But uh, I'm sure people know that there's a, a, a swathe of really incredible endemic Cenozoic um, uh, placental mammals, which have always been 
well, they're, they're kind of very strange morphologically, but they've always been difficult to place within phylogenies. People haven't really got much clue as to exactly what kind of animals they are. There, there have been suggestions for a long time that um, that they're in some in some way related to other so-called hoof mammals, other ungulates, but that's that's uh, hasn't. It, it turns out that you know ungulate monophyly is certainly not supported. These animals are not relatives. I mean, perissodactyls and artiodactyls are different branches of Laurasiotheria, and then things like proboscideans and sirenians are part of this major Afrotherian clade, which is not close to Laurasiotheria. So where do Nota ungulates go? I always thought. Um, I always thought my limited information that there were these unique bunch of things that evolved on South America when it was an independent continent and they yeah. resemble everything else through convergent evolution. Yeah. Yeah. Well, th 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 in general, in general, that's, uh -huh. that's, that's true. Yeah. So uh, some people have suggested that they have lit. So lit up turns, this mm -hmm. group that includes camel, superficially camel and superficially horse and superficially deer like, uh, tax are more diversity than just macrochenia, which is the only one you ever see being mentioned in books. But um, um, the, yeah, they're, they're mostly kind of cursorial, long-legged things. Note ungulates include some small kind of superficially rabbit-like animals, typotheres and hegetotheres, as well as the toxodons, which include familiar kind of rhino-like or hippo-like toxodon, plus a whole bunch of other animals. Um, yeah, it's been suggested that both of these groups, Lithopterns and Notoungulates, Toxodonts in particular, Toxodonts are now known from North America. There was one published really recently um, that seemingly did get, you know, from uh, across the Central American land bridge into North America uh, during the Pleistocene or Pleistocene. Mm -hmm. But um, there's supposed to be a couple of North American things that are possibly related to these animals. But the idea that has been suggested quite a few times now is that, is that, as the affinities of these animals, maybe it's been implied that maybe they're related in some way to Xenarthrans or to Afrotherians. There's already an idea that Xenarthrans and Afrotherians might be close relatives anyway within a placental mammal clade that would be called Atlantogenata, the Atlantogenates. Um, but um, there's still kind of a lack of, there's only one or two. Uh, whoa, what happened there? Uh, sorry, sorry about that, my mistake. <laughs> um, there's only one or two studies that have included, you know, vast sampling across placental mammals, good sampling in order to help you pin down the, the, the affinities of obscure South American things. We're, we're in, a, you know, ancestral stage of knowledge still. It's crazy. I mean, so litopterns, notoungulates, you've also got the pyrotheres, which are these mm -hmm. superficially proboscidean like group and the astrapotheres superficially like group hmm you mean uh, astrapotherium and yeah yeah things like yeah. that yes yeah so i've i've these animals are so interesting and so obscure it's so hard to find information on them that first of all you have to go to extraordinary lengths to get the information i've gone to a lot of trouble to try and track down some of the literature but basically the only way i can get some of it is by actually borrowing it or stealing it off um, the, the people that work on these animals, um, and a few of which I know. And then um, once, you know, I, I want to blog about it. I started blogging on uh, notoungulates, and I, I went through some toxodonts, but I've uh -huh. never, I haven't had time to finish it. I also made a start on litopterns, but there was one major study, like a huge sort of 200-page monograph on a group 
of litopterns called the proterotheriids, which are the, the sort of familiar kind of like gracile horse-like ones. Um, and I, I've been absolutely unable to get that, that paper. And until I get that, I can't really cover litopterns in depth because, as I said, there's a lot more to them than just macrochenia. Um, and I've, I've covered astrapathies once or twice, but they need to be revisited because there's... Um, <laughs> you're supposed to have your phone off when you're podcasting. It's very unprofessional. <laughs> Sorry about that. You know, it's it's one of the things that come with being a rock and roll zoologist. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> okay, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. But what? What? I mean, what else is there to say about them without going into the meat? And well, I, I maybe know. maybe we can link them to cryptozoology and. You know, it's been done. It has been done. I, I, I distinct, I faintly remember reading something about this one Mayan statue or carving that somehow resembled an elephant. And I always had a fantasy in my mind if that was that could have been some sort of a late surviving uh, astropoter descendant, parallel no, evolution. like. Yeah. Now, now, of course. You come up with any single idea about the survival of anything from any period in history, mm-hmm. and there will be there will be in the cryptozoological literature someone somewhere will have proposed this mm-hmm. se- seriously, not as a joke, but they will seriously have proposed that that this so, so eurypterids, trilobites, giant millipedes, uh, those little gliding lizard-like animals from the Triassic or Cunia, Cuniosaurs. Um, Archaic synapsids like Procynosuchus, uh, Tanistrophius, and that's even before you get to dinosaurs, pterosaurs, saber-toothed cats, and mammals. All these things have all been suggested by cryptozoologists to uh, possibly persist to the present. And um, there's a whole load of suggestions which are, I suppose, summarised best in Carl Schuker's book *In Search of Prehistoric Survivors*, um, mm-hmm. where where there's lots of ideas about people saying, oh, this thing looks like it could possibly have been... This this artistic depiction from a Mayan temple or whatever, you know, could be a, a depiction of Macrochenia or, or this hippo-like object that somebody sculpted could be a depiction of a Toxodon or... Um, there's, I have a vague memory of um, there being a load of bits of art that from ancient, um, uh, like, yeah, the Aztec Empire or something, some depiction... Uh-huh of camel-like things, but they're given multiple toes. And, uh, and there's some discussion in the cryptozoological literature is, is, ah, oh, could these be references to, uh, to uh, litopterns of, of some sort? I'm, so I'm, I'm pretty sure that stuff is out there already, and I don't know off the top of my head. The problem I'm, with it is that Mayan art is particularly stylized. Um, yeah. And it's very it's like difficult were... to take anything literal out of it. Well, know. don't, yeah, don't, don't assume that I'm right. Don't assume it was Mayan art, but... But yeah, I would say that's no, true no, for actually, stuff. That's what I'm looking at right now. Just googling on the side, and there's considerable number of Mayan uh, friezes that people liken to elephants. But actually, they don't do like most of these websites or proponents don't assume any cryptozoological identity. Mm. But there is talk of like mm, ancient aliens type of stuff mm. about how. Same civilization actually built pyramids in uh, Mesoamerica and Egypt and of in other course. places of the world. 
Yeah. And they carried elephants around, which the Mayans, you know, beautifully just happened to sculpt into their very realistic tradition of sculpture. You know, that's right. Okay. Um, how, how it goes. <laughs> if if people are going to talk about um, uh, depictions of elephants in uh-huh. ancient South American cultures, then wouldn't they talk about uh, people? People have also talked about the fact that could these be depictions of real proboscideans, real elephants and mastodons? that did inhabit South America yeah. until geologically recent times. We know that there were uh, gomphotheres like Cuvieronius, uh, this one with the famous spiraling tusks that uh, are meant to have persisted, I think, I think into the Holocene. So in some time, you know, like 11,000, 10,000 years ago, possibly have some overlap with, um, uh, well, would have had overlap with ancient American indigenous people. But whether they would have persisted to... Uh, I know, I know there are one or two um, accounts from historical times, as in as recently as the 1800s, of people seeing elephants in the wild in South America. But um, uh, there's one really good detailed one in particular. But the, the problem is, of course, well, okay, if somebody did see an elephant in South America, I don't think that late survivor from, from prehistory would be the most likely conclusion would it it would actually be well it's an elephant that someone shipped over and released or it escaped from a circus or something um because i do not think people have much regard for uh, biogeography or zoogeography um when they have animals which and everybody and you know within historical times people have had tigers and elephants and crocodiles and ostriches and giraffes and stuff and they don't give a crap as to whether the animal can survive or whether it's right for it to be in a certain region. People will just release it, as is verified by the fact that pygmy hippos have been found in Australia and that there's a huge thriving population of camels in, in the, the arid interior of Australia and, and so yes. on and so forth. So, <laughs> so uh, some guy in, with a... In snake. the future, that's going to be hard to explain camel fossils <clears throat> in Australia. Yeah, yeah. Well, this I do. I I would be interested to know how a uh, a, a non-human zoogeographer might. I I think it would be pretty obvious that humans have had a pretty major impact on the distribution of organisms. But oh my god, yeah. what a mess! Yeah. <laughs> what, what would they make of cars? I was thinking about that the other day, and to make a like big tangent here, what would what would a non-human art paleontologist and suppose for argument's sake that. They haven't discovered that people are intelligent, really, or they haven't made that connection. But they come up with this, you know, dredged fossils of cars. And what would one make of them? Because if you look at their models and makes, they show a very similar radiation to what you might expect from an actual evolutionary lineage of. Yeah. But the problem is that it happens over a period of decades. And geologically, that wouldn't be... Super fast evolution. Yeah. Yeah, but quantum, quantum. quantum evolution. Uh-huh. But no, suppose uh, suppose they haven't been able to date them very accurately. I, the think, I think we could be reasonably confident that any culture uh-huh. that is sophisticated enough to try and interpret fossils in the first place will appreciate the difference between organisms and machines, don't you think? Wouldn't, wouldn't they? There could be one exception if that culture rose came there and fell and then was rising again when it came into this fossil. 
I don't know. I don't know. I, uh, I, I, my gut feeling is that is that any culture would tell straight away that this is a thing that's been crafted by other intelligent creatures, not that it's a... But that, that does raise an interesting question. You know, we're getting to the stage in our own technological development where we're, we're able to make things that, in some respects, mimic or resemble organisms. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure there must be science fiction stories where people find something they think is a machine and it's actually an animal or vice versa. Uh-huh. So uh, that's, that's a, a fun idea to, to play with. Um, Maybe. Have you ever read this amazing book, Mottle of Mysteries? Um, I've seen pictures of it. Yeah, I've seen. Is it the one that's got the toilet seat as a... Um, Address. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Yes, I, I, I've seen it. Tell, tell our listeners about this book. Okay, so it's this book actually... In a way, its spirit is similar to what we did in all yesterdays. Uh, because in this book, uh, future archaeologists, they're human, they dig up a like CD porno motel left over from the 20th century. You know? And they interpret everything in this uh, dingy hotel room in the like most strange way imaginable. So to them, a toilet seat becomes a ceremonial headdress. And, uh, and an icebox becomes a sacred container for the heart. And actually, uh, uh, a sink becomes a place where people put the baby because it's got a hole for its pee to go and stuff like this. <laughs> so it's hilarious. And it, it won like the best book award in the 1980s. It's a really, really good book. North American, every North American high school has it. And... I was always thinking if we could take what we did in all yesterdays, which was to imagine present-day fossils with uh, the same mistakes made in paleontology, and to go ahead with that, play a bit more, and to actually have a like future expedition book by an alien that somehow visits Earth and has a sort of Victorian's knowledge of nature, no more, no less, and what they would do. And that could be a fascinating idea. And I was just fantasizing. I know you kind of knocked my arguments down, but I was fantasizing that they would discover all these families of like trachomorphs and automorphs and, you know, these tiny half bicyclomorphs or whether they are like embryos, larvae <laughs> of cars or whatever. And I strange things like that. And maybe they would discover one exceptionally well-preserved mummified specimen with like uh, bits of bits of rubber steer adhering to the tires. So they would say, aha, this disc-shaped things supported like muscular foot with which the cars crawled around. And their hmm. heads had glass windows in which they probably cultivated some sort of photosynthetic bacteria culture because the inside is just covered with carbon. And I don't know. I think anyway. it's... It's it's one of those interesting areas where it's similar to what I was saying about camera traps. It's, uh-huh. you, you'd have to have you have to hypothesize the idea that well that there are cultures species that don't think the way that we do. So I'm I'm saying that yeah we we automatically would would know what what machinery is you know and any culture similar to us. But but what if I'm assuming that a culture is going to be similar to it's it, it, it's understanding of machinery and, and mm-hmm. so on and technology is going to be similar to ours but what if you know you're talking about a population of i don't know say things that have come from a completely different lineage nothing at all resembling vertebrates and their entire culture is based around you know soft squidgy 
tendrils or not mollusk feet or something when they were confronted with gears and cogs and mechanical mm -hmm. parts you'd have to yeah you have to be working on the basis that they're they're not able to think of them as they're thinking of them in an anatomical frame of reference or, or they are in fact machines themselves so all this stuff is normal but they don't think of themselves as machines because they've been around for ages and there has been sort of some sort of evolution going on yes isn't, yes next isn't book coming up it's all well fleshed out now <laughs> i just remember there's there's a there's a, a short cartoon which is all about the life cycle of the car as reconstructed by sentient future cars and they come up with this whole life cycle for how how cars are uh, bred in a, in a kind of organic way and they say that a bit but a big problem with the cars of the 20th century because obviously I'm talking about a thing that's from the 80s or before it says the big problem is that they were infested with these biological parasites <laughs> <laughs> and, and every single time you find one it's kind of it's linked with these with these horrible parasites that would crawl inside the cars and and uh, so, so maybe maybe the solution there is that they eradicated that problem. They got rid of uh -huh. the biological pests. Um, <laughs> the parasite yeah, could yeah. induce the development of an extra seat in the background <laughs> just for its own nefarious offspring. <laughs> <laughs> now, I think, given that I haven't been paying attention to any social media because of the Tapir article, which is now online, I haven't proofread it yet, which I always try and do, we should just quickly go through... So you posted, remember, you posted this thing on Facebook. Yeah. Uh, let's just quickly go through the comments we have. Okay. Unless anyone objects, John, no? no? no. Sorry uh, for wild fight <laughs> of fancy back there. Hey, this is, this is the Tezu podcast. <laughs> what okay, do you expect? So, Yonwoo Lee, good old Yonwoo, says, I once saw the long-tailed Edmontosaurus in the All Yesterday's launch video, Darren Nash part. Can someone explain this more? Because I couldn't find much info about it. What specimen has this? I think he's talking about the drawing of Sorolophus, the yellow one that he made. <coughs> Excuse me. No, I think that Yanwu is talking about the Tracy Ford illustration of ah, the Edmontosaurus with the jaw. Yeah, so yeah, your illustration, the beautiful color one, mm. you, why did you give it a long tail? Because there was talk in the scene about right, yeah. somebody yeah. discovering a whip-tailed... Uh, That's it. Yeah, we're all riffing. We're all talking about the same thing. We're all referring to the same thing here. So, so the rumours are, and much of this comes from Tracy Ford, who mm, mm, Tracy may be Tracy may be the most reliable source in the world, or he may not. I, I'm not sure. But um, <laughs> Tracy and other people have have said that there are actually unpublished specimens of the um, duckbill dinosaur Edmontosaurus <clears> that that preserve. An incredibly long tail, like much longer than anyone has ever thought before, and have a giant dewlap. So that's why, and he published, Tracy published an article on this in uh, Prehistoric Times and included his own reconstruction of this animal. That's where I got the idea from, and I actually uh -huh. got the picture off Tracy Ford. And then, of course, since then, people are, people are making noises all the time about, you know, weird dinosaur soft tissue things. Since then, we've had the, the baby Caparowitz Parasaurolophus specimen, which has got a bit of skin on it, which doesn't really reveal that much. But within how long ago? It's been the last couple of days. This paper on this alleged, on this Edmontosaurus specimen, which um, seems to have some kind of like low raised soft tissue crest. So a crest similar to that of Carithiosaurus, everyone knows, but a soft tissue crest of that form. So a supposedly boring, flat-headed, uncrested hadrosaur 
according to this study, has a low rounded crest. And there's he's, a beautiful. He's wearing a fez. Wearing a fez, a fez like a fez like crest. So that's you. People have seen there's lo loads of reconstructions online of Edmontosaurus now with this crazy little crest. But um, I'm, I, I heard that the whiptail one was Saurolophus, and I'm, I my source is not Tracy Ford; it's someone else. So, um, but uh, I thought that was fairly certain that it okay. was it was a specimen of Saurolophus. It's not a Montosaurus. Right. That, that's where I heard it from, John. You told me and I was inspired. That's how it came well, to Yeah, maybe, I don't, know if the, I don't know if it's the case that it, <clears throat> someone heard it about Saurolophus and then extrapolated it into Edmontosaurus or whether there's an Edmontosaurus had it as well. But Saurolophus does sound, does sound more right. But, um, but this, this new, this new Ed, oh, and we can't say any more on that. This is just a rumor. Nobody's published anything on this. And yeah, I, yeah, I don't know nothing. You know, there was a Hadrosaur, special dedicated Hadrosaur meeting in Canada, uh, in, I think 2010 or 2011. And, and I asked people who went to that meeting, have you heard about this, these, these new soft tissue specimens with the long tail and the dewlap? And, what? No, nobody. Nobody who, who worked technically on ornithischians seemed to, seemed to be Maybe aware. we're just being trolled. <laughs> <laughs> and as for the new Edmontosaurus... I'm pretty sure that there's something going on there with some crest, but whether it's exactly the form that they have published, I don't know. Because if you look at the photographs of the fossil, because bear in mind, I don't know if you've actually seen the fossil, but it's one of those specimens where it's preserved in the, uh, what's the name for it? The name for the posture where the animals have it. The opistotonic posture, where uh -huh. the, the neck is curved right back so that the back of the head is almost in contact with the back. So this animal, the, the tissues of the top of its head overlap with the soft tissues on its back because it's got skin preserved on its back. People have previously assumed this crest area is part of the tissue from the, the dorsal region. So there's a bit of slop in terms of actually how you identify it. And the shape that the authors have, and I'm not going to mention the author's name because I can't remember them, but um, they may have, uh, I don't know, they may not have it totally, totally right. I know there's a couple of opinions out there. So... Um, it, yeah, it's a difficult fossil to interpret in many ways. See, I've seen the photos. You can see the photos online. There's some open yeah, ones. I've, I've yeah, been it looks so a bit tricky. Um, yeah, I haven't paid much attention to anything really. Um, I mean, if 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 that thing is real, it kind of outlines an interesting trend in which bony accessories you see in later species are uh, prefigured by soft tissues in earlier versions, and the same was with pterosaurs. Mm. Uh, Pterodactylus had a, a soft crest, something like that. It was discovered. And all the later forms had similar structures supported by all kinds of weird bones. So I wonder if it's an Archosaurian evolutionary thing. Well, well, I, there's certainly uh, there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on <laughs> in, in, <laughs> in Crown Archos, I think we can conclude. Did, did, did any of you see the Ewok that I drew in a, in a copy of uh, the Cryptozoologicon? Yeah, I, dis I remember it. Okay, I've just had a comment from the person who that Ewok was directed to, and he seems okay with it. He says, just remember that we brought down the might of the Galactic Empire using pointy sticks and gliders made of wood. So that's, uh, yeah, sorry, I had to share that. So, okay. Good on you, Luke. Good, you're good sport, man. Um, more questions than comments. More, yeah, more questions. So, so that's the um, question number one. Um, uh, da, 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 da. Matthew White has an amazing question. Could multiple uh, mega froglet conveyances, that's the made up name we had for the Canvey Island monster, 
take on a Sasquatch with a reasonable chance of winning? Uh, I, all depends on the multiple. I say without doubt. Yeah, yeah, without doubt. It's a, a huge number of them, no problem. Yeah. I think it would be a draw because the Sasquatch would eat it and the frog would inflate itself and he would choke. So everybody's dead. Well, um, Mega Froglet is meant to have um, um, an unusually nasty several rows of, of teeth. And it's quite large, a very broad mouth. So if you could get okay, one of them over each Sasquatch arm and then a, a couple more latching onto its ears or breast if it's female one, then, well, I think... <laughs> and, and to find out more, you have to read our new book, The Cryptozoological Science. <laughs> um, hey, Raven's got a question for you. Aha. Memo. She says, my introduction to your art was through your Snayat project and your dinosauroid creatures. Dinosauroids designed in conjunction with Darren here. Any chance you will return to these projects in the future? I say, yes, there's a chance. It's actually happening. But I've been saying this for so long that I really don't want to give no teasers until the thing is done, the deed is done. But uh, me and a friend, Simon Roy, we really, really want to get our uh, hands into dinosauroids again. And with Snayat, I'm planning to <clears throat> make more line art drawings showing every clade of animal from this planet. And obviously, until those are done, it will be silence from me. But rest assured that things are being done about them. Excellent. Hey, um, we're not allowed, you and I, I don't, John, I don't think John was involved in this, but you and I aren't allowed to talk about that TV project, are we? We're not allowed to talk about it. So don't say anything. Just leave it at that. Yeah, I think yeah. that project has expired. But ah, no, no, you don't. No, no, no. You never say that. You never say that. Ah. You just say, "Oh yeah, there was that TV project." Yeah, yeah, and then you ah, move yeah, on. The one right? day, yeah, yeah, <laughs> the yeah. One day, <laughs> and when John and I and Richard Hing, hi Richard, and other people, Jeff, were, hi Jeff, were wandering around in Soho at two o'clock in the morning after uh -huh. the launch, we are at the same place. Uh -huh. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, because we, as we were in the street, I recognised this street. And I was, I was <laughs> telling everyone, "Ah, oh, any moment now, we'll come to this building." Because I knew the way, didn't I, John? Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. But that was it. Was on my mind. So, uh, yeah. Oh. Um, oh, sorry. Next question. Next question. Move on. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Mark, <laughs> Regarding Mark. John's, yeah, John's feathered T Rex and Mark's recent statements about the problem of ontogenetic loss of feathers. Mark, who's he, which Mark? Uh, I don't, there's lots of Marks, I don't know which one he means. Why it's next impossible to have a feathered juvenile on scale covered T-Rex? Um, oh, wow, that's, I don't know, the whole, the whole feathered dinosaur thing seems to come up every, 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 uh, every um, episode. Um, do we want to cover it now or should we leave it till later? I think at some point maybe we should do a big thing on feathered dinosaurs, I don't know. Well, it's I sort of a big subject and we end up rambling on and on, so... Yeah, I honestly think it's a good idea to, to, to gloss over it for now and say we've got to come back to it. And, uh, and on, on to genetic change, the idea that animals might have feather, feathers or fuzz at one point in their life and, and scales at another point, well, there's a lot of interesting things to say about that. And a lot of it ties into people's ideas about the life appearance of these animals, about weird stuff we know about the developmental biology of scales and feathers and illuminated by brand new discoveries, some of which aren't yet published. Um, people who went to SVP will know about this ornithischian that had some crazy stuff going on. 
Um, so yeah, I, I say I say let's let's devote more time to that because there's always interest in dinosaurs and feathers and fuzz and stuff. Uh, Hingo Richard Hing asks about some throwaway comment I made about Terulictus, which is a uh, a mustelid that was published in uh, well this 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 year actually uh, a Miocene animal from from Spain. It's kind of like an otter-like terrestrial mustelid, and um, uh, it's it's got kind of a really unusual combination of characters it's uh it's just kind of uh, one of those weird like oddball lineages that seems to be out on its own doing something different it's something something close to otters but it seems to be a very terrestrial um kind of mustelid but not but not an otter uh and the, the predictions to start with was that it probably would be an otter because we know particularly in the the mediterranean region particularly in the miocene there are a whole load of, of otters that seem to take to um uh, terrestrial life, you know, otters doing a lot more running around, hunting on the on the land than is obviously normal. Do you, normal think, do you think this would be because of the Mediterranean drying up and refilling every now and then? Um, well, kind of, but I think it's more to do with the fact that the Mediterranean was just a great place to live if you're an otter. Um, the, like nice little islands full of little endemic oh. uh, animals and relatively short distances to cross and equable climate um because there it's are a great a great place to live whatever you are <laughs> yeah it's not bad um some parts are better than others yeah, yeah. the east end that's not so good but uh... <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Every, everyone loves the mediterranean but what you mentioned there now on it now as a you know european person mm -hmm. i've always i've always known this uh and particularly obviously as someone who like trained in geology as well it was sort of drummed into you from an early age but worldwide people may not be familiar with the Mycenaean salinity crisis and what happens to the mediterranean during the miocene john you familiar with this no i did know you know okay so so the mediterranean is the is actually the whole history of the mediterranean is interesting it's the relics of the tethys so obviously as the gondwanan continents as africa moved north tethys was closed obviously it's closed at the far eastern end as india crashes into continental asia so tethys is closed at the eastern end but at the at the western end tethys is also closed as africa moves to contact eurasia and you have this event in the late miocene when there's actually a land bridge formed across the afro-arabian region, this thing called the proboscidean datum event, which allows uh, African, supposedly African endemic mammals like proboscideans and hyraxes and stuff to get out of Africa and into continental Asia. Uh, but this now means that the Mediterranean is stuck as this kind of semi-enclosed, mostly enclosed um, sea, which, oh, and also the Black Sea, the Caspian Sea, they are relics of the Tethys you know, landlocked relics as well. Um, the Mediterranean, as mostly enclosed, is now prone to phenomenal rates of evaporation and prior to the construction of the uh, uh um the what's the, what's the canal in the red sea called is the suez canal yeah? yeah yes yes yeah prior to the creation of that obviously the only outlet is the as at the gibraltar straits which is really tiny and that's a really active tectonic zone so if any like weird uplift any any stuff goes on there if that becomes shorter the mediterranean is actually in danger of drying out and that's exactly what happened in the Mycenaean, which is one of the last stages of the uh, of the Miocene, the Mediterranean completely dried out this during this event called the Mycenaean salinity crisis, and it uh, became restricted to a series of like large hypersaline lakes. So it still had loads of animals in it, including like sea cows and stuff. Well, they were screwed <laughs> because uh, uh, it, it dried up entirely. And as it dried up, 
salinity crisis. Uh, tons and tons and tons of gypsum salts and other other minerals were deposited. So, in parts of you know the, around the fringes of the Mediterranean, I mean, I know it from Almeria in southeastern Spain. But you have these you know whole cliffs made of uh, evaporite salts, all this stuff left over from the from the drying up of the Mediterranean. So basically, the whole of the Mediterranean dried up. So this area was now a, um, a like a lowland valley and a kind of an enclosed basin until one event at the end of the uh, uh, the Miocene. I think it's called the no, it's in the Pliocene. I think it's called the Zanclian event, the Zanclian flood. It's thought that one day the the wall at the Gibraltar end was breached. The sea poured in. And um, and the Mediterranean was refilled, and that I don't know how mm-hmm. they reckon that took I don't know, a couple of centuries or something, but just must be, must be cataclysmic. Yeah, a, cat- a truly cataclysmic event. Of I, th- I think it's been said that the the waterfall would have been say you know I don't know four or five times taller than Niagara or one of the biggest Victoria Falls or you know the biggest the biggest waterfall today. Absolutely unbelievable event, and that obviously it's refilled good. them. It would make the refilling of the Black Sea, which happened later, it would mm. make that look like a urinal. <laughs> so, uh, amazing event, and uh, and associated with this kind of. So, when you, in in the Miocene, you seemingly had this like you know island endemic faunas, um, when sea levels are quite high because the Miocene, you got this um, climatic. It's called the, the Miocene climatic optimum. So, sea levels are high anyway due to like lack of or low, low levels of polar ice. So even places that today aren't islands, like the Gargano Peninsula in India, in, in Italy, sorry, Italy, in um, the Miocene, that's an island, and that's the place where you get, like, giant endemic hedgehogs, dinogalerics, and also weird endemic birds of prey and, and other animals. Then after that, the, you know, the, the Mediterranean dries up, so those places are not islands anymore. But then when you have it refilling, then you have these places, some of these places made into islands again, obviously, you know, Crete and uh, and Sardinia and all the many 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 other islands become islands again. So you have like a new wave of island endemism evolving across the the Mediterranean. So really, the uh, Neogene history of the Mediterranean is dynamic and um, and constantly you know these cataclysmic events that are yeah changing the whole history, the whole shape of the the place. My my favorite animal from that time is the cold blooded supposedly goat. Myotragus. Oh, yes. Myotragus. Yeah, yeah. Basically, it's the. It's like imagine that midget in Game of Tr- Game of Thrones in goat form. Like that. <laughs> That's uh, an interesting way of uh, referring to your fellow human beings. But... <laughs> no, no, it's a it's a character. It's a movie I character. I don't think it is. It's a Lord Tyrion, but um, um, uh, yeah. I, I, mm. But but that was the normal condition for that that bovid to be to yeah. be like that too, and also for it to have this apparently poikilothermic uh, physiology, so um, uh, slow growing, um, cold blooded, uh, yeah, ectothermic, yeah, unable to generate, well, unable to retain its own body heat, and and with really tiny slow growing juveniles. I mean, very hard to understand. There's a paper came out yesterday in PLOS One about dinosaur growth rates, um, talking on the subject of the broad subject of physiology. And uh, I haven't read it yet. I skimmed it last night when it came online. It seems to say that there's a lot of stuff, that, a lot of things people have said that about dinosaur growth rates that they've got very, very wrong. Um, but uh, 
that, that's all I know at the moment. I have to have to check it out. Um, but uh, heads will right. roll. Yeah. Heads will roll. Yeah, I'm sure they will. Richard's last question. Oh, no, no. Move, no, we're done. Move on, move on. Yeah, he wants okay. to hear about Richard and his stupid, crazy opinions anyway. Yeah, you get uh, one question. You get yeah. one question, people. Hey, okay. so, wrapping it up. Uh, uh, so the Cryptozoologicon, it's great. Buy it. It's got ace reviews. Everyone loves it. And, uh, and we had a ball doing and Thanks to Levin and Reese once again for generous donation. And yeah. keep watching us. Uh, volume 2 is going to be out any month now and also any new surprises may be forthcoming so that's Ooh. it from me yeah yeah and happy christmas yes merry christmas <coughs> and a happy new year i don't have bells so i'm knocking some pots and pans together because i was having lunch yeah yes, hang on See hang on Hang on, in... guys. Uh, Website addresses and stuff. Uh, okay. okay. Sorry. So re- you go to irregularbooks.co for the Cryptozoologic on where you could buy it. Uh-huh. Um, the podcast website is petzoo.com. Memo, your website. My website is dmkozeman, that's K-O-S-E-M-E-N.com. And yep. Darren's website is... Well, yeah, give us the URL to that, Darren. Well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> just, just Google Tetrapodzology. <laughs> just Google Tetrapodzology. There's also a Tetrapodzology Facebook page. Not enough people have joined it or liked it. Only a few thousand. We need some more. And uh, I tweet at at Tetzu. I didn't. Oh. I didn't have time to find a quote I haven't, I haven't used before. Um, oh, and uh, that's it, isn't it? And for John, go to johnconway.co and he has a really nice dinosaur pet guide up. Take I wanted to talk about that. that, yeah, but we're, oh, another, we're running out of time. Maybe so famous. Mm. <laughs> Not very rich, though.